you could make a case that Sicily has the tastiest food in Italy. One reason is the many different traditions they've inherited. We still have a recipe that probably we had 1,000 years ago when Sicily was Arabic. Sicily was Arabic, so we're preparing the rice bowl di arancino. Coming up, we'll tantalize your taste buds with great things to eat in Sicily. When you're in Istanbul, take a commuter ferry across the Bosporus and you can say you had an intercontinental cruise. So we take the ferry, we go to the Asian side, we have some Turkish coffee over there, and then just get back to Europe in 15 minutes. Or do like Kate Harris and keep heading east on the legendary Silk Road on a bike. It's a great way to see Uzbekistan. I feel like I came to know that country more by its constellations than by any terrestrial landmarks. It was absolutely surreal to be sort of flying through the stars in this incredibly flat desert. Food in Sicily, fun in Turkey, and biking across Asia. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. The end of the road was always just out of sight. Adventure writer Kate Harris tells us about her epic bike journey from Istanbul to the Himalayas along the legendary Silk Road. And we get an update on tourism in Turkey from a pair of guides from Istanbul a little later in the hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Each region of Italy can certainly make a strong claim to having that country's best cuisine. And today, we have two tour guides with us on Travel with Rick Steves who specialize in Sicily. They're here to make the case that once you've enjoyed authentic local dishes from that island, you'll never want to leave. Joining us now are native Sicilian Tommaso Ponte and Nina Bernardo, who's an Italian-American who's called Italy home for the last 20 years. Tommaso and Nina, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having us. Grazie mille, Rick. So I just made a big deal about Sicilian cuisine, and you're both aficionados about Sicily. How would you differentiate Sicilian cuisine from Italian cuisine, Tommaso? Oh, there is a big difference. There is a huge difference, actually, between the two different kinds of food. Uh-huh. In Sicily, we have, uh, I think we have the variety the variety in terms of food, because you can go from the meat to the fish, from the fish to the vegetables, from the vegetables to the pasta. I mean, we have a variety of food that probably you don't find in any other place of Italy. And that's because of the different influence, the different dominations we had. Because so when it, you say dominations, this means uh, invading cultures that took over. Exactly. So invading, I mean, different culture that took over in Sicily, they left something in the food. And, you know, we still have a recipe that probably we had 1,000 years ago when Sicily was Arabic. Hmm. Sicily was Arabic, so we're preparing the rice bowl di arancino, which is a typical Arabic recipe. Or the cannolo, which is something that was uh, the cassata, something that was Arabic again. So we are reusing in some way all the recipes. So you're enriched by your colonial heritage. Exactly. All of the different layers. Exactly. So, Nina, when we think of the Arabic influence, I didn't realize that, but uh, talk about arancini and conolo. So arancini are fantastic. There are these wonderful rice balls that you make and you flavor the rice with saffron. The traditional ones have a a ragu sauce with peas and cheese and a little hard-boiled egg. And then you would roll that up and roll it up in what they call a pastella, which is like flour and water mix, and then breadcrumbs. And then, of course, you have to deep fry it. And then it makes a great snack or breakfast food or, And you you even see that all over Italy. But And when you see that in Rome or something, is it... But you would not want to eat them on the peninsula because they're not going to be that good. It's not the same. So when you go to Sicily, that's where you're going to get the real... That's when you get to read it, yeah. Exactly. And, and cannoli. And I would say the same thing about cannoli. Many travelers, North American travelers, come to Italy and they associate cannoli with, it's an Italian dessert, so mm-hmm. they come to Rome or somewhere else, and where can I get cannoli? Mm-hmm. And I always tell them, well, you need to go to Sicily to get a good mm-hmm. cannoli. So what is a good cannoli? So it would be made with sweetened ricotta cheese. Mm-hmm. The shell would also be deep fried, 
And ideally, you would go to a bakery that would stuff it when you buy it. Because if you mm. stuff it ahead of time, then the shell gets soft and you don't want that. So you want the contrast between the crunchy shell and the soft inside. And that's when it's really delicious. When you go to the markets in Sicily, I am so enthralled by the music of the markets. Uh, Tommaso, when I step into the marketplace in Palermo, it's like the merchants are singing. What, they what, are. What, what's happening? What are they saying? What's happening? I mean, they're promoting their merchandise. Uh-huh. They are promoting. I mean, I'm selling artichokes for 20 cents one. I'm selling one kilo of tuna fish for 10 euros. Uh, they are absolutely promoting what they sell. Pretend you're a merchant right now and you've got uh, sardines you're trying to sell. What would you say in Italian? Uh, sardine, sardine, 10 euro a kilo. Venite qua a comprare. Arancia, arancia, 20 centesimi a kilo. Boil the arancia. You cut out the So well, that was so, fa- that was so fantastic it. because Tommaso's not even doing it in Italian. He's doing it in Sicilian it's dialect. Oh, yeah. yeah, so it's even more musical. It's fantastic. Yeah, I love that. I can walk around in those markets forever and just be in, enchanted by that. So, Nina, if you're walking through the market, uh, what's your favorite market in Palermo and, and what kind of a tactile or tasty experience oh, do you my, actually have? Oh, my favorite market absolutely, is the Balaro market. I think it's the most authentic now. Balaro. Balaro, yeah. Uh-huh. That's been around since the 10th century, so it's the oldest one okay. as well. And you walk through there, and now it's a very multicultural mix as well because a lot of new immigrants who've come into Palermo have set up their own stalls. But you can find absolutely everything, and you can try a lot of things as you go through. Like, panelle is something I always like to try when I go through there. What is that? Chickpea flour that's made into these little squares, and it's also deep-fried. And they uh. um, just a little salt and some parsley inside. Mm-hmm. Eat it quick when it's hot. Or the crocchette, which are um, basically like mashed potatoes made into a little ball and then now, fried. If as you well. don't speak Italian or Sicilian, if you're bold enough, you can just go in there and you say, can point. Just point oh, and hop a little bit. And up, yeah. Laugh with them and they may charge you, they may not. It's just you can have that experience. Yeah, absolutely. So throw yourself into it. If you are open and put a smile on your face, that opens so many doors for you. And <sighs> Sicilians are incredibly engaging and they are proud of what they have to offer. So it doesn't take much effort on your part to have a good experience in the market. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Nina Bernardo and Tommaso Pante, and we're talking about edible Sicily. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Mark is calling in from Berkeley in California. Buongiorno, Mark. Hi, Rick. Nina, Tommaso, thank you so much for taking my call. My vegan daughter and I are planning a trip to western Sicily, including the Viegeti Islands, for the summer. My questions for you are, what are the chances of us finding acceptable food at restaurants, uh, not to mention a memorable meal, on the islands for my vegan daughter who eats no dairy or meat. Any suggestions for us? Nina, what would you advise? I think you're not going to have any problem just because fresh vegetables are available everywhere and they're a huge part of the Sicilian diet. So I really don't think you're going to have any problem finding vegan options. They won't be specifically labeled as vegan because they don't need to be just because there are so many vegetable options there. Is there like how they cook it considerations or is it basically vegetarian and and no dairy? Yeah, we just want to make sure that the vegetables aren't cooked in the same oil. Well, that's what I'm wondering about. So it's that strict because a lot of people don't take vegetarianism very seriously and they, they wouldn't even dream that you care about what it was cooked in. I would think that it would help to have something written in the local dialect that's very clear because you're going into a little hole in the wall restaurant. They'll cook whatever you want, but you need to communicate it. Sono vegano. Would that, be, that would work. That is enough. I mean, they know absolutely because, I mean, all the Sicilian restaurants, they are they know updating. The things. And they that's know. what I've noticed all over <laughs> Europe now is there are little indications on a modern menu and it has a, a letter saying this is uh, Vegano, whatever concern you might have. Yeah. 
So I think, Mark, the, the challenge for you is going to be to have that ability to communicate your concern, and I would do it in writing. I would have a local person write in a very clear way, assuming the, the waiter's a, a good person that doesn't really take vegetarianism very seriously, and uh, have it written out there, and then they'll realize it's important to you, and then enjoy your trip. That sounds like a great idea. Thank you so much. Have fun. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Tommaso Pante and Nina Bernardo about food in Sicily. You know, I love pizza when I'm in Italy, and there seems to be an ongoing debate about where does pizza come from, Sicily or Napoli? Nina, what's the story? I'm sorry, Tommaso, to have to say that it originated in Naples. Naples. Sicily does their own version. Nina, you are kidding me. I think this is the only time Tommaso and I are going to disagree. Okay, so you say Sicily was born in Sophia Loren's town, uh, (laughs) Naples. And uh, Tommaso, make the case that it was born in Sicily. Pizza. Yeah, well, our pizza actually is very different from the Neapolitan pizza. Our pizza in Sicily, we have a different variety. We have the thin pizza with a lot of ingredients on top. Or we have the Palermitano Sfincione. S-F-I-N-C-I-O-N-E. What does that mean? Exactly. Sfincione actually is a pizza, uh-huh. uh, which is uh, very thick, uh, where we use a lot of simple ingredients, just tomato, pecorino cheese, and olive oil. And sometimes they put also some onion. And this is sold as a street food you oh, go okay. in the middle of the pedestrian street of Palermo. How would that be different from a, a Neapolitan pizza? Uh, well, very different in this case, because Sfincione is thick. Neapolitan pizza is thin and more chewy, right? Yeah, yeah. Sfincione okay. is really spongy. Yes, yeah, sp- oh, almost that's like, a, right. like a sponge cake kind yeah. of yeah. Um, so texture to it. Thicker Salt. and more doughy. Yeah, uh, exactly. It comes from an Arabic word, which means spongy. Is that what you would say Sicilian pizza is? I would call that version. Sic- yeah. And then what we're used to probably is, is more Naples Neapolitan pizza. style pizza. Okay. And then when you're thinking about some quintessential Sicilian dishes, pasta con la sarde. You have to try it if you go. It's made with wonderful wild fennel and raisins and pine nuts and olive oil and fresh anchovies, and it's absolutely delicious. So it's is it basically spaghetti, a sort of variation on spaghetti with anchovies? Kind of, yeah. Or sardines? We use sardines mostly. In fact, it's called the pasta con le sarde. Okay, so you sarde know? is the Sicilian word. Sicilian for so sardines, yeah. Oh, okay. And actually, I'll tell you something. Pasta con le sarde is more western, west of Sicily. When you go in the eastern part of Sicily, then we talk about pasta la norma with tomato and eggplants. Ah, okay. So norma even, meaning Norman, norm, the, like the Norman. No, no norm. norma is the opera from uh, Bellini. Ah, Bellini? okay. Yeah, yeah, the Norma, the Bellini, you know. Now, now, Nina, you talked about these ingredients. It sounded wonderful. The key ingredient is the wild fennel. That's what gives it a particular flavor. Okay. And if you want to refresh yourself, I think on the, all over the streets on a hot day, you can go for a granita. Oh, yeah. Granita in the summertime is fantastic. Can you describe a granita? Granita made with crushed ice. And then if it's made well, it's made with really like fresh squeezed lemon juice and then some sugar in there Mm. or fresh orange juice with some sugar in there. I had a a refreshing drink that had a little bit of saltiness in it that I bought at an outdoor stand in Catania. That in Catania. Catania. They do a thing called, Tommaso, what's this called? Uh, Um, It's a seltz. Seltz. That was a seltz. That is seltz. But it's only in Catania that you find it. And I thought that was very interesting. And I was glad I had the chance to stumble on that. But if you think about it, how hot it gets. What do you, you lose the minerals, right? Yeah. So you need salt and some lemon and some fizzy water. And it's very a great practical. Pigment. Yeah, very practical and very easy to prepare, actually. Again, granita, we have two different areas of Sicily. The granita from the east, if you talk to the Sicilian, is considered the best granita of the island. So when you go to Cataormina, when you go to Catania or Syracuse, you should find one of the best granita. And remember, the granita not to be missed is the pistachio granita. 
Pistachio granita, and another reminder of the Arabic influence. Arabic influence, and also pistachio production, the slopes of Mount Etna, because remember, this is one of the most important areas for the production of pistachio. Pistachio gelato, don't forget. I love it. (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're eating our way through Sicily. Our guides are Tommaso Pante and Nina Bernardo. Nina, if you're invited to an international potluck dinner here in the States, and and you were going to bring some Sicilian dish that would just steal the show, what dish would you bring? I think I would probably bring cassata. So cassata is like the quintessential Sicilian dessert, and it's like a little sponge cake, again, with sweetened ricotta cheese and a layer of very thick, wonderful icing on the top. Mm. And it's absolutely divine. Okay, I want to come to that party. Tommaso, let's say we're in that market again in Palermo, and you're, you've got a whole bunch of granita, and it's melting, and you want to sell it. I want to hear you sing the song to buy your granita. Sing to me in the market. Catadema granita, che se sta squagliando. Catadela, catadela, sta granita gusta solamente 30 centesimi. Venite tutte carne, tutte carne. Provatela, guardate che buona. Everybody who's listening, when they go to Sicily and they go to the markets, I don't care if it's Catania or Siracusa or Palermo, they're going to hear... Your voice singing out, selling the goodies in the market. Nina and Tommaso, mille grazie. Grazie mille a te. Grazie mille. Grazie, and grazie. buon appetito. Grazie. <laughs> Tourism numbers are rebounding in Turkey after it took a hit in 2016. Guides from Istanbul bring us an update in just a bit. But first, a top modern-day explorer from Canada tells us about her adventures pedaling a bicycle for weeks across some of the world's most remote terrain. It's getting wild in the lands of lost borders. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Kate Harris grew up wanting to be a globe-trotting explorer, so she invited a childhood friend to join her on a bike ride across Asia along the fabled Silk Road. From Turkey to Tajikistan, and even sneaking into Tibet, they had quite an adventure, and she writes about it in her book, Lands of Lost Borders. Kate Harris, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Rick. What an epic bike ride. Now, before we get into the big uh, discussion, can you just give us a quick outline of where the trip went, countries, how long were you on the road, and so on? Well, we traveled through 10 countries in between Turkey and India, and it took us uh, 10 months in total, and it was around 10,000 kilometers. I know this is America, so to put that in miles, I'm not sure. To put that in miles, miles. I'm not sure. 6,000 miles, whoa. On the bike over 10 months... All across Asia. You looped around through China and ended up in Kashmir, northern India. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Now, why? <laughs> Just why? <laughs> that's a lot, of, a lot of biking over 10 miles in places where there's no guidebook to help you out. Yeah, that's true. We could have used some of your, your guidebooks yeah. out there in the, the stands especially. Why? I, mostly sheer curiosity and desire to know what's around the next bend. And I was fascinated with the Silk Road as a child. My mother had this book that I loved that had been hers as a child. It was this illustrated, abridged edition of Marco Polo's travels. And he just looked like the consummate explorer to me, you know, like rugged and bold and gazing off at distant, fantastic horizons. The Silk Road, I think of it as, well, it was a trading route back in the days of Marco Polo that took you from China to the gateway to Europe, kind of, in Turkey or something. But physically, what is the Silk Road? And and what do you see when you spend 10 months biking on it? Is there anything that goes back that can evoke the days of Marco Polo? Yeah, well, the Silk Road is really a label we've put on to a network of roads that were trading routes between Europe and Asia. So they ferried goods, people, and ideas back and forth. It's still alive and well in a, a lot of ways. Essentially, in a lot of the historic trading hubs, that Marco Polo visited, you can still see original architecture dating back to that era. What century was that with Marco Polo? 13th 
13th century. So the 1200, so 800 years ago, 300 years before Columbus or centuries before Vasco da Gama and Magellan and so on, this was yeah. before they knew the world was round. And it was just, must have been just so exciting to connect the West with the East. And so when you think about your bike ride, if you describe it, I was reading through the chapters on Georgia, for instance, and it sounded, Georgia, former Soviet Union, it sounded pretty grim and dull out there a lot of the times. Uh, what was it like day after day, 100 miles after 100 miles, pedaling across these vast expanses? Yeah, well, part of the dullness of Georgia, Georgia's an incredible country, and I would love to go back, but in the summertime, because we were there in the winter, and so it was pretty gray and cold a lot of the time, but the warmth of the people we met along the way definitely made up for that. I feel like there are so many ways to travel, and cycling in particular exposes you to the world around you in a way that few other modes do, you know, if you're on a, mm -hmm. a bus or a train. The other thing we noticed with cycling is that everyone rides bikes everywhere along the Silk Road. They use them to get to work, go out for a joyride. Hmm. Um, we would pass just like masses of school kids heading to school on, on bicycles, and we'd join them for a little spell. It must have been fun for them to see a, a couple of women from Canada on bikes and just plopping yeah. into their world. Alien invaders, I think they, Alien they invaders, saw us in that yeah. category. Was there a um, circle of travelers that could share information? Or I've never seen a guidebook for this, quote, Silk Road. Did you get information online? Or how did you know how to cross borders and what to eat where and where you might sleep or what you might see in the middle of uh, Kyrgyzstan or Uzbekistan or, or whatever as you were yeah. biking across? We'd essentially do big information gathering sessions when we had access to the Internet in some of the bigger cities and in between that, we were kind of kind of on our own. We would get information from families we stayed with that welcomed us into their homes mm. or other cyclists going the other way. So we'd chat with them. It's a quite popular cycling route. I mean, lots of people bike the Silk Road. There's a lot of experience out there, and, and there are ways to share information. I remember when I took the bus ride, yeah. when I was a backpacker from Istanbul all the way to Kashmir, where you ended up. People had to share information, and there was a hunger for information. And you'd meet the same people all all along the route because this was the route, the hippie trail to India from Europe, you know. Is there yeah. a, a dimension of that for biking the Silk Road? Did you meet other travelers at hostels in the middle of nowhere and so on? Yeah, there are certainly places where we all seem to congregate because there are so many variations on the Silk Road that you can follow, but everyone seemed to show up in Kashgar, for example, or Dushanbe in Tajikistan. That was in part due to embassies. These were the places where you, you had to get the visas you needed to continue traveling. Oh, so you're just and hanging so, out waiting for your visas to be processed. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Swapping stories. and. What about shots? Did you have to worry about shots when you crossed the border? Shots like? Inoculations. Oh, vaccinations? Yeah. No. No, we were never That was a big deal back in the old days, crossing the border. Everybody had their yellow vaccination um, record sheet. And if you didn't oh, have the wow. right shots on your yellow vaccination sheet... You had to wait until tomorrow when the nurse came in. And I'll never forget being at a border and watching the needle bend as they put it into my friend's oh. arm. It was such an <laughs> old needle. And I thought, you can't cross the border unless you get the shot. So you don't have to worry oh about that gosh. now. Did you have to worry? You no. went through 10 different countries. You crossed 10 borders. Did you need visas? Or did you just say, hi, I'm a Canadian and we're biking around? Oh, I wish it were that easy. We certainly needed visas. And that was one of the biggest headaches of the trip. Central Asia in particular, all the stands, I don't know what it was like when you went through. I guess it was all part of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. um, nowadays, tourist visas are very restrictive. Like you have to enter on a certain date and leave on a certain assigned date. And so lining those up 
was sort of like this elaborate game of chess mm. with uh, the different rules that operate in Uzbekistan versus Kazakhstan versus Kyrgyzstan. And, was that done uh, one capital at a time? So you'd be in Uzbekistan and you'd go to the capital of Tajikistan and or you'd go to the capital city to get your visa or learn what you needed for the next country down the road. Did you kind of think yeah. one country ahead or did you have it all laid out from the beginning? There was a bit of a, a strategy. So you had to think at least one country ahead. So for example, to get our Chinese visa en route, the only country in all of Central Asia that was granting Chinese tourist visas to foreigners was in Uzbekistan. Hmm. And so at one point it looked like we wouldn't be able to get to Uzbekistan. Our visas were denied the first time. And we just thought the whole trip was fragmented at that mm. point because we couldn't weave together a, a route that would get us to China. But you talked about slipping through a border at night when nobody was there. <laughs> yeah. Now, is, yeah. that just seems Not like advisable. you're looking for trouble. You literally <laughs> snuck into a country when nobody was at the border just because you thought, heck, we got places to go. <laughs> no, it wasn't a border per se. It was, uh, although it, in the past it has been, it, we basically snuck into the Tibetan Autonomous Region within China. So this, oh. this used to be Tibet, independent oh. nation, and now it's a regional boundary. And they have checkpoints that restrict access mostly to locals. They're quite concerned about locals leaving that region. So yeah, we snuck in because you, as foreigners, you need permits, special permits and guides. And the permits really restrict where you can go within the Tibetan Autonomous Region. And we didn't want to be led around on a leash. And so we snuck in. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by explorer Kate Harris, and she and her childhood girlfriend biked all across the fabled Silk Road, and she writes about that in her book called Lands of Lost Borders. Today, Kate calls remote northern British Columbia her home. Her website is kateharris.ca. Hey, Kate, your book is called Lands of Lost Borders. Why that title? Well, the borders were certainly not lost in a political sense and physical sense. You know, we saw lots of walls and needed a lot of visas to travel the Silk Road. But I was hoping to evoke the idea that, you know, travel is about breaking down the, the borders in your own mind, most of all, and seeing the world differently and seeing ambiguities where before you saw things in black and white. So those are the, the lost borders I'm referring to. And did you come away with that souvenir from your trip? Absolutely. How so? I guess I have a deepened appreciation for complexity and just how how complicated things are in countries that operate very differently from Canada and the U.S. You know, I've wondered about that, too, because we could just say, oh, they don't have a democracy. Let's throw out their leader and get them a democracy. But it's probably more complicated than that. Yeah, as Afghanistan is testament to. I think there's a way of, I don't know, we, we do things a certain way here in North America and think that that can be exported and successful in a different cultural context. And that's so often not the case. Uh, one of the stories I like to hold up from traveling through Tajikistan is the fact that national parks there in the form of sectioned off parcels of land that supposedly have rangers that patrol it and protect the wildlife and uh, ecosystems within it just don't work. They're some of the most or the least biodiverse parts of Tajikistan. Hmm. And the most biodiverse parts of Tajikistan happen to be within like hunting conservancies because Hmm. Foreigners will pay a lot of money to trophy hunt a Marco Polo sheep, for example. And that money supports the protection of Marco Polo sheep, which supports protection of snow leopards by extension. Hmm. And so the whole ecosystem is kind of held up by trophy hunting, which, you know, in Sierra Club card holding uh, members back home, that's not really a, a appealing approach to conservation. But when you have a country as poor as Tajikistan that has few other options for doing 
conservation the way we do it here, Mm -hmm. it makes you think twice. Okay, let's go through your trip now, Kate, just very quickly. After pedaling 6,000 miles, what was the most jaw-dropping view you can remember from your bike? Oh my gosh, that's a challenging question. Or one of of the very best. One of the best? We bike through Tajikistan, or sorry, Uzbekistan. I get all the stains Mm -hmm. mixed up even now. At night, for the most part, because it was so hot by day in the, the deserts of Central Asia that it was pretty much insufferable to ride. And so we would camp out all day and swelter in our tent and then set off as the sunset and ride through the night until sort of dusk. And then we'd kind of crash. And biking at night under the stars, I feel like I came to know that country more by its constellations than by any terrestrial landmarks. It was absolutely surreal to be sort of flying through the stars. Mm. It's an incredibly flat desert where they seem to come right down to earth. Kate Harris is the kind of person who doesn't really let a border tell her no. For one thing, she lives off the grid in a cabin not far from the Yukon in northern British Columbia. She's with us today on Travel with Rick Steves from the CBC Studios in Toronto to tell us about her amazing bicycle adventure. It took her down the fabled Silk Road, across the former Soviet stands of Asia, and into the Himalayas. Kate's book is Lands of Lost Borders, Out of Bounds on the Silk Road. Her website is kateharris.ca. What was the scariest close call? You pedaled 6,000 miles. Did you feel safe on your bike? We did for the most part. Certainly um, in terms of the people we met, we never felt at risk in the the slightest. The scariest part was traffic. You're on the road with transport trucks and cars that aren't used to seeing cyclists in some cases and They'll pass by as close as possible and honk their horn and wave, and it's the friendliest gesture imaginable, but you're terrified for your life. In the middle of nowhere, yeah. you don't have a 911 you can call. No. I was no just speakers. talking to somebody about safety for travel, and by far the biggest cause of deaths for travelers is uh, road accidents in countries where there's no 911 service. Yeah, I believe it. What was the, Did you ever get really discouraged or depressed halfway through your 10-month odyssey and think, why did we do this? Or maybe your friend said, what are we doing here? And you just felt like almost aborting the mission. Oh, gosh. I almost wanted to abort the first week when we were in uh, Turkey, and it was January, and we were on the Black Sea coast, so it was extremely rainy, and it would sort of hover around being freezing rain and Mm. then would sort of lean into being snow. So we were just soaking wet all the time, and the Black Sea coast is very corrugated, so we were either going up or down, and Mm. we'd be super hot as we went up and then freezing cold as we went down. It was just a really hard start to the trip, and it wasn't the sort of dreamy, romantic expedition that I I had envisioned. It was just hard. Mm, And I'm glad it came at the beginning of the trip. Yeah. Yeah, I remember doing the, not that my my odyssey was nothing like yours, but I I started and ended in the same spot from Istanbul to Kashmir. And I remember getting onto that, and they actually had a map that was the, you know, the hippie trail from Turkey to India. This map was long. It was like long, skinny map, and you'd open it up, and it had like, six or eight panels as you opened it longer and longer and longer to from the left to the right. And we would be on oh, the wow. bus for a couple of days and we'd open up this thing and we'd, it's like, we've gone nowhere. This is going to take us forever. <laughs> and you, you must have had a similar sense of that when you started pedaling out of Istanbul thinking, so we're going to China, huh? <laughs> yeah. And that's what people would ask us, like, where are you going? And we'd say Hindustan, which is what they call mm. India in <laughs> Turkey. They must have been nuts. They would just laugh. I, I can imagine that. What was that? Was there a euphoric moment that comes to mind over the whole trip? I think the final pass on the road through Tibet. So we'd been sneaking illegally across Tibet the whole time, and we came to the final pass, which is past Everest, 
base camp turn off. You're in the heart of the highest mountains in the world. And then you plunge from, I think it's about 16, 17,000 feet all the way down to 3,000 feet in mm -hmm. Nepal. Mm -hmm. And so you go through sort of this lunar barren landscape and then get lower and there's more uh, foliage and you get even lower and it starts to feel tropical. It was just an incredible day and 100 kilometers of pure downhill from that, that high pass. And this was Nepal. coming into Ladakh? Uh, into Nepal, actually. Into so Nepal, we, yeah. Yeah, we had to kind of do this, as you described, this like spiral in to get mm -hmm. to northern India, mostly because of borders. At one point we were in Tajikistan, we were like 400 kilometers from our final destination, but we had to go 4,000 kilometers to get there because of borders. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kate Harris. Her book is Lands of Lost Borders, A Journey on the Silk Road. Kate grabbed her friend from childhood and they just set out on a 10-country, 10 10-month, 10 6,000-mile odyssey, and Kate writes about it in her book. I remember when I was traveling across Asia, I would almost measure uh, how far I was from my destination by how many borders I had to cross. What was it oh, like yeah. coming up to a border on a bike when you're surrounded by, a lot of times at these borders, you have a long line of trucks and cargo that's waiting to get across. Did you ever find a huge backup and you could go straight to the front or were you just stuck there with everybody else who was laying on blankets under their trucks for days <laughs> on end? I can tell you've traveled this route because, yeah, things have not changed in that respect. Um, we would essentially jump the line with people's encouragement. So we'd bike right up to the front. So but a truckers would be waiting there for days and they'd see you guys and they'd go ahead, go right to the front and get to the front. And hopefully you've got everything in your passport in order. Yeah, we were always afraid at every border that they'd find some reason not to let us through, especially in the stands where they're very wary of foreigners for one, but especially journalists. And so we would always get asked, like, are you a journalist? And mm. no, no. So you just said tell them I'm a writer. Right. You just said tourist. Tourist. That's the easiest way to cross a border. I'm just a silly tourist. Did you ever have that's to right. bribe your, did you ever find yourself in a position where you had to bribe your way out of trouble or bribe to make something happen? Sort of. We, so in Uzbekistan, we needed to have um, proof of where we'd stayed each night. And since we were spending many nights in a tent, this was impossible. And so we found a hotel and the hotel concierge was willing to, for a sum of money, willing to backdate a bunch of these receipts Ooh. to fill in the gaps. They and so we were so proud this. of ourselves. They probably knew yeah. the tourists needed it. And they had a little business of adding overnights. Or they knew we didn't need it, as it turned out, because we got we were so excited to show our bribed receipts at the exit border heading into Tajikistan from Uzbekistan, and they didn't even ask for them. I, I yeah. feel like it was a big oh. make-work project. Oh, my goodness. But you never know. You don't want to go to the border and not be prepared. Yeah. They have a lot of power, these borders. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Kate Harris. Her book is Lands of Lost Borders, a journey on the Silk Road, talking about her epic bike ride. Kate, after this this huge investment of time and energy and, and emotion, what do you take home from this adventure that you set out on? Well, it's, it's so easy to despair about the state of the world based on what we hear in the news. And um, in some cases, that despair is justified. But I, I really feel like if you hit the road, especially by bicycle, and travel travel at all, anywhere, you'll see that the world is full of incredible, kind people who mostly want the same things that you do, and um, it's an incredibly hopeful undertaking. I don't think you can come back from a trip like this without feeling a lot of hope for the, the future, which is hard to come by if you pick up a newspaper. I think the world would be a better place if everybody had a few days to be on a bicycle in Tajikistan. I completely agree. 
Kate Harris, thank you so much for sharing your adventure. Happy continued biking. Thank you, Rick. It was a joy talking to you. Tour Guides from Istanbul update us on visiting Turkey. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Tên tôi là Dave Fox. Tôi sống ở thành phố Hồ Chí Minh và tôi đi du lịch với Rick Steves. Hi, my name is Dave Fox. I live in Ho Chi Minh City and I travel with Rick Steves. Tên tôi là Dave Fox. Tôi sống ở thành phố Ho Chi Minh và tôi đi du lịch với Rick Steves. It started with a failed military coup against Turkey's President Erdogan back in 2016. That, plus a couple of terrorism incidents, scared away a lot of tourists from Turkey for a couple of years. But with a bargain exchange rate on the Turkish lira and the process of democracy working itself out in Istanbul, Turkey's back among the top destinations in world travel. We've invited tour guides Yaren Turkulu and Lali Sermon-Aran to update us on how things are going in their city. Lali runs SRM Travel in Istanbul, and Yaren is an art historian and archaeologist and also guides American visitors around Turkey. They'll take your calls at 877-333-7425 about travel to Turkey. Lolly and Yaren, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So, Yaren, when you have an American coming to Istanbul as a tour guide, what do you most enjoy sharing? Besides visiting some of the major highlights like Hagia Sophia Museum, Topkapı Palace, I love to take the commuter ferries ah. with my tour members. The commuter ferry from Europe from to Asia? From Europe to Asia. So it's an intercontinental cruise for about $2. Definitely. So we take the ferry, we go to the Asian side, we have some Turkish coffee over there, and then just get back to Europe in 15 minutes. A quick trip to Asia. A quick trip to Asia. So Istanbul has how many people? It's estimated to be around 17 million now. 17 million. And how many would live in Asia? Roughly, population-wise, European side is bigger, as far as I'm, so I, I know. So a few million in Asia and most of them in, in the Europe. The business center is in Europe. So. But every day, I would imagine a million Many people, people commute from Europe to Asia or vice versa every day. Now, Lali, recently, Turkey has invested in an amazing tunnel that connects... Asia and Europe. What is the status of that now? Uh, It is in full function. Actually, there are two tunnels. One is for the subway. We call it the Marmaray. So you can have a couple of minute trip from one continent to the other. And the other tunnel is for the motorized vehicles. You Hmm. can choose to drive as well. So you could conceivably take the ferry across, enjoy uh, seafood on the Asian side, and then go into the metro station and come back underwater. Exactly. Has that been successful? Has it helped congestion? uh, Very much. Because Istanbul is a thriving uh, metropolis now. It has made public transportation more fun and easier and more accessible. Now, as a guide, when you have somebody from the United States coming to Istanbul, what gives you the most joy to share with them? There are many things. The scenery, the diversity, the food. But if I am to say one more thing, I would probably say the people. The people. And if a tourist wants to connect with the people, what's a good tactic? Weekly markets. Weekly street markets would be a very good opportunity to do so. Uh They are organized in every neighborhood once every week. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be one set day of the week. It changes from neighborhood to neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But that is where you would get to see the real action and the real people. Even as a student, when I would go to Turkey, I would always play a game of backgammon in a tea house Mm -hmm. uh, because I always felt a little bit like a celebrity coming into some neighborhood tea house. Here's this crazy American and very welcomed. 
if an American walks into a, the neighborhood tea house, not a touristy place, but just a place filled with Turks playing backgammon, drinking tea, smoking, sucking on the big hubbly bubbly, how will they be received? Very well. Actually, that would be such a treat to the locals in that tea house. I always feel like I'm doing them a favor by giving yes, them something yes, to talk about. Yes, any tourist walking into a tea house is giving the locals a treat <laughs> for the day to tell something to their families at the end of the day. So anybody who has a chance should go ahead and try it. Now, Yaren, if I was to walk into a tea house that never saw another American tourist and I wanted to smoke the big uh, nargile that it looks like a big hookah, what am I smoking and, and what's the, what is the process? The basic thing is, uh, as far as I know, it's still tobacco mixed with fruit flavors. Okay, so fr you can have apple flavored. You can have apple flavor, you can have melon, you can have orange, rose, coffee. So Many flavors are available. And then it's, it's basically a, a social exercise? It's a social activity, yes. Many young people, nowadays we began to have very trendy nargile hookah cafes in Istanbul, not like, you know, local cafes. They are really very trendy. And younger people enjoy going there as well. So we call it a hookah, but in Turkish it's a nargile? It's nargile. Basically, I don't think you really inhale. You just play around with the smoke and you... When I smoke it, you know, uh, with the people, I don't do it normally, you know, but when I smoke it, uh, I just give it a little inhale and I, I exhale, you know, yeah. but you just get the taste of it. And also, you know, it gives, you know, it's a social thing. Just like sitting around the fire, you sit around the nargile and just enjoy chat with your friends. Lolly, what is the ambience when you get together and you... And you have Smoky. <laughs> Smoky. That, is it an old-fashioned thing or is it a, a popular thing, though? It is regaining popularity, mm -hmm. as Yaren mentioned, and it's uh, more popular among the younger people, university oh, okay. youth, I must say. There are several Nargile cafes along the Bosphorus. Yeah. And closer to the university campuses. And then there's always backgammon. You can hear the chatter of the dice and people having fun yes. moving their pieces. Yes. Learn to play backgammon <laughs> and check out the hookah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Turkey. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Dusty's calling from Lakemont in Georgia. Do you have a question or a comment for uh, Yarin or Lali? We're scheduled to go on a trip. And uh, the other day, I got a notice from the State Department an advisory about reconsidering your trip. So can you explain that a little bit more to me? I mean, I've got the side from the State Department, which looks pretty grim, but what is it like on the ground as far as the area that we're going to visit, and especially in this temple? Well, that's news to me that the State Department would be sending advisories out. They actually sent you an advisory when they heard you're going to Turkey saying you should rethink this? Well, I am on what they call... Uh, uh, that organization that is connected with the State Department and they send you travel advisories. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So, so they're, not, they're not contacting travelers thinking of going to Turkey and say, don't go. No, no, they, no, no. they just connect with you and let you know, here's our list, and Turkey's on the list with some other places where you should have extra caution. And let's talk with Lolly and Yaren about that. Uh, Lolly, what is the situation now for uh, international travelers going to Turkey? Well, first of all, thank you for the question. It's a very good question. I hope somebody asked it. That warning is not new. It's been there for over two years now. And they would only send this notice to the people if they sign up with the State Department to receive news when they are updated. So the latest notice you received is due to the updating of what had already been there. It's not due to a new coming reason. Mm -hmm. So it has been there 
since the coup attempt we had in mid-16. It's post-coup in Turkey. Yes. And there was a huge crackdown in Turkey after the coup, and understandably a lot of tourists wanted to stay away from Turkey after that. I think the track record right now is impressive stability in Turkey. Uh, True. But, uh, you know, there's there's always going to be groups in different countries that are going to be causing trouble. I think we need to look at what is happening in Turkey. How is tourism now in Turkey, Lolly? To be fair, we had very bad two years in 016 and 017. Mm-hmm. But when the rest of the world, or I should say, when the travelers realized that the attempt of Q, it wasn't successful to start with. And uh, the outcome of the Q attempt was not something or is not something that affects the life of the ordinary people, ordinary citizens or ordinary visitors. The government was successful to establish the safety of the people living and traveling. So therefore, I'm knocking the wood about it. There has not been a terror attack since then. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I can easily say that its streets of Turkey, streets of Istanbul are rather safe right now. Dusty, it could happen that there would be a bomb in somewhere in Istanbul. Istanbul is a city of 17 million people, and it's not that uncommon that somebody's going to blow up something somewhere. And as a traveler, you've got to decide, am I going to stay home in the United States, which loses 1,000 people every month to handguns, or am I going to venture to another country that loses a few people because of angry groups within that complicated world? I'm not going to say it's perfectly safe, but I am going to say there's a lot of stability in Turkey, and when people do go there... They, yes. they enjoy a, a good time. Yaren, what's your feeling about the vibe when you're on the streets in Istanbul now, two and a half years after the coup? I have a long commute to work, so I take public transportation a lot, so I'm always with the people. It's very lively. Istanbul is now very lively. There are so many people. When I return home at 1 a.m., uh, the public transportation is full of people, and almost more than half of it is women. So people are happy. Turkey has many problems right now, just like elsewhere, you know, but generally people are happy and, you know, they just continue their lives. And, uh, you know, for a lot of people, they're going to be uneasy about it, but uh, you just have to decide on that. Uh, But for me, the litmus test is how does it feel on the streets of the city? Because I've been in places where it just does not feel good on the streets of the city. And I've been in other places where I was kind of afraid to go. I got there and I thought, thank goodness I had the nerve to go here because it just feels great and I'm contributing to a local economy and I'm learning and I'm coming home and helping Americans get a better grip on what's going on between nations. Uh, I hope that gives you some uh, insight there, Dusty. Yeah, it it does. Thank you. Um, I was actually, this is our second attempt to go, so we've been waiting patiently to go. and, And then when we got that notice from the State Department, it was like, well, this is, this is not good. But to be fair to them, they said, you know, probably Istanbul would be fine, but the eastern provinces way over on the border would be probably something you'd want to rethink. And I did want to call and, and, yeah. uh, and well, talk with you folks. And, 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 you know, you made me feel a lot more comfortable. And to put that in perspective, let's say somebody has a, a, a ski trip planned in Colorado, and then somebody says, oh, you shouldn't go to the United States because there's unrest in Alabama. You know, it would be about right. like that. So, I mean, it's a big country, and, um, you know, there's a lot of real history happening, and I think it's really important that we travel to a little bit of Islam and get a first-hand look there. And uh, good luck with your trip, Dusty. Thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. Lolly Sermon Iran has been arranging custom tours in Turkey and neighboring countries for 30 years and operates SRM Travel in Istanbul. Lolly and her husband, Tan, are co-authors of the Rick Steves Istanbul Guidebook. 
She's joined today by Yaren Turkoglu to update us on the scene for visitors in Turkey. We have more with Lolly talking about the variety of people you'll see on the big pedestrian avenue in Istanbul. That's a show extra, and you can find it on our website at ricksteves.com slash radio. Tammy's calling from Huntington in New York. Tammy. Hello. What are you thinking about <laughs> when it comes to Turkey? Once again, I have safety questions. I wanted to know, because my husband and I were thinking of going to um, Istanbul, but also to venture out to Cappadocia and hmm. Ephesus. And I also wanted to know if American Jews are welcome in Turkey. You know, Tammy, uh, it is understandable that people are concerned. And I'll just tell you personally, I would go there tomorrow with my children. So, you know, there's that reality. And then there is from the United States looking at commercial news and getting an assessment of, you know, can I really go to Turkey? I've been talking about Turkey for 30 years, and there's always been this mystique about Turkey. And uh, right now, admittedly, Turkey is in a different zone politically. Erdogan has his agenda. He's uh, quite an autocratic ruler. He had this, uh, you know, law and order state set up, and then they had an attempted coup, and he cracked down hard on that coup, and that offended a lot of people because he's locked up a lot of journalists and he's locked up a lot of political activists. That's a Turkish issue, and different Turks have different thoughts about that. I don't even know how freely Turks can talk about that, and I don't want to ask our guides about that. But as the experience of a traveler going to Turkey... It's fascinating to me. You find nothing but a joy of life and an excitement to teach you what is Turkish delight. Lali, when you have an American coming to Istanbul, what is on your teaching agenda? Well, Tammy, thank you for the question. Actually, for an American planning to travel on their own to Turkey, what I can say is that watch the taxi drivers. That would be the only warning that can come into my mind at the moment because, because there is no specific threat or danger against Americans or people of any religion traveling into Turkey. Now, there is a reality. How many million refugees from Syria are in Turkey now? About four million refugees are in, are in Turkey at so, the moment. So, so this is reality. There's problems in the Middle East, and it's not Turkey's fault, but Turkey is at the front line of this, and Turkey is very compassionately and generously housing these people, and Turkey doesn't even have necessarily the strongest economy to take care of this, but they do that. And there's political uh, positioning, and there's separatist groups, and there's a government trying to stay in power. So to me, this is part of reality. And when we travel... We have the option. If you go to Disney World, you've got no question about, you know, it's just so predictable, it's so delightful, it's just a fantasy. Or you can choose to go to a place like Turkey. Yaren, any thoughts on that? Uh, what I believe is Turkish people are now very happy to welcome tourists back. And Turkish people really appreciate the fact that people come from faraway countries to see there. So they do their best to show the best of their country. And I think it will also help if they try to speak a few Turkish words. Turkish people love that. And you're both women in the Turkish workforce. How do you feel? Because this is an issue in, in politics everywhere. How are women as far as their career paths and, and their freedom to have a job of importance? It's a fact that uh, the world favors men more than women. But I'm quite proud to say that women have a good chance of surviving in a career path in Turkey than compared to many places in the European world. And this is due to the founder of Turkish Republic, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, who recognized rights of women back in 1930s and gave them the chance to vote and to be voted. So Turkish women starts the game one step ahead of the rest of the world. Hmm. I personally, I have been in 
professional working life for 30 years, I did not face any significant problems in my career path because I'm a woman. My question to you is, with Erdogan in power now, and he's got more power than anybody in my lifetime that I can remember as the leader of Turkey, what's his attitude about Ataturk? Well, that's an interesting question also. Atatürk's full name is Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, and his birth name is Mustafa. Kemal is his given name by his primary school teacher, and Atatürk is the name that the Turkish nation gave him after the establishment of the republic. And the most common name we use for him is Atatürk, the name that the nation gave him. Quite interestingly, Erdogan refrained from using that name, but rather addressed him as Mustafa Kemal, but not Atatürk, which translates as the father of the Turks. Hmm. Only after the coup attempt, he stopped addressing Mustafa Kemal Atatürk as Mustafa Kemal, but started using the name Atatürk. Really? After yeah. the coup, yes. Erdogan now calls Atatürk by his beloved name, father of the yeah, Turks. Not always, but he started using it. It's right. a big change. But they do have some political and philosophical differences. Of course. Major What are a couple? Um, Erdogan likes to live the life as a perfect Muslim. Ah. And he wishes to impose his lifestyle to everyone else. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't do it because it's politically not correct. And uh, he is trying to give place to women in politics or in other walks of life, not maybe because he personally likes it, because it's politically correct and it's the path of the country. Okay, so Erdogan is caught in a little bit of a bind because he is more of a fundamentalist Muslim who would have different ideas about women and about pluralism and separation of mosque and state. But Turkey is committed to this more modern, Mm Western-looking kind of democracy. And this is unfolding, and this is one reason to travel there. You can have tea with somebody in a a tea house and suck in that nargile and play a little backgammon and talk about what's going on politically. Tammy, thanks so much for your call. Uh, Thank you for taking it. Thank you. Yaren, I asked uh, Lali about the difference between Ataturk and your current leader, Erdogan. What is your perspective on that? Uh, I would agree with Lali. Uh, many people have concerns that he's trying to impose his own way of life, his preferred way of life. On the other hand, uh, Turkish citizens have already demonstrated how attached they are to secular values and the uh, principles of Ataturk as well. And you so, think Erdogan would be actually uh, limited by that popular determination to be more separation of mosque and state? Yes. Well, that's very interesting. I want to go to Turkey and talk to some people and learn more about this. Yes, you are welcome. Thank you very much. Yaren Turkulu and Lali Aran, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of Turkey and best wishes. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmara Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at the CBC in Toronto for studio help this week. You'll find guest information, program extras, and you can listen again on demand. Our show notes are updated each week at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.